Hello, everyone. This is Austin Hurwitz, and you are listening or watching to the inaugural episode of the One Big Idea podcast. If you've been with us for a little bit, you know that I've been writing since the summer with the One Big Idea newsletter. That's really been focused around Web3 strategy for the crypto curious. We break down a major topic in NFTs, DeFi, you name it, in the in the world today, and try to leave you with you know one big idea. Same concept is applying to the podcast. The difference is you don't have to hear me ramble the entire time, and so we're going to bring on a bunch of different guests that are building in the space, whether they are uh, product managers, investors, artists, um, you name it, founders. We're, we're going to bring them on and, and learn like what are the big trends that they're focused on? What is the work that they're doing that you can hopefully take a little bit away from? Um, I created this podcast one, and I talked about this a little bit in the trailer, selfishly, because I want to be able to talk to all these people. And two, I wanted to bring a little bit of levity and fun into what can be a little bit dry on, on some of these podcasts. So keep me honest. If, if your eyes start glazing over, let me know. Uh, let me know what you like and what you don't like. And the last thing for being here early, because in Web3, it's all about being here early. I'm dropping a free collectible OG, uh, one big idea NFT. It'll be claimable on both Polygon and Ethereum. I'll leave the link to that NFT in the show notes. Um, it will have some future utility, so stay tuned on that and it will also be very limited edition so there's no plan of having this in perpetuity so you're going to want to get on that so if you have any questions feel free to reach out to me on twitter you can always dm me um, but that's just a little bit of a thank you and we've got a lot more coming last thing you'll notice the audio and video quality is not up to the standard of what i would call a production grade podcast that is something that I take very seriously. It will absolutely be up to par, in my opinion, in the future. There are a bunch of conversations that I'm having right now around sponsors and production, editing, you name it. The reason why I decided to just get this out is, one, it's very much in the spirit of Web3. We're here to iterate and build, build in public. If you wait until it's perfect, you've waited too late. And so I'm totally fine putting something out there that I know is in 100%. And two, it feels very topical with Andrew having this project. Um, you know, it literally just minted a couple of days ago. And so it, it's very topical. I didn't want to wait until all of that got sorted. This is something that I want to get in front of all of you as, as soon as possible. So I hope you enjoy it. I know I did. It was a great conversation with Andrew. And yeah, you'll hear more from me soon. So Andrew, obviously, we've known each other for a bit. The first time I saw you in person was at Basel last year when you were walking in 4K <laughs> and I shot you a note. I was double fisting champagne at 11 a.m. <laughs> I wasn't going to say it. I, I was going to get, I was going to keep It's that. okay. It's okay. We can put it out there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You may have hey, look, been. It, it, was my, it was my first Basel. <laughs> so. Yeah. First, first Basel, like 10 a.m. My man is walking with like two things of champagne in 4k uh, clearly going somewhere and i was like we we had interacted a bunch on twitter before and you were someone that like i greatly admired and and shot you a quick dm like i think i i see you and you turned around and we ended up you know hanging for the entire week and have been friends ever since so i'm i'm super stoked to have you on and uh be able to kick off the pod with you so welcome i mean it's awesome to see you doing this you know 
you meet people in the space and you meet them and, and they're doing one thing. And then a few months later, hopefully if they've been committed, they figure out what they really, really want to do and then grow into it, try things out, experiment. Uh, that's sort of the phase of life I'm in right now. Just what makes me passionate? What do I think moves the needle a little bit? And then let me just try that thing out. So I think it's really cool that you've been working on one big idea. Uh, it almost gives me a, a little bit of FOMO. It's like, huh, maybe I'll, I'll try that too. Cause I see Austin doing it. You, you do a lot of building in public, um, as well as calling people out in public. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we do a little bit of, of calling out as well, but I think that's, what's so beautiful about the space, right? It's incredibly multi hyphenated. And I would describe you as someone who very much takes that multi hyphenated to the nth degree, whether you're doing art or you're, you're a writer or you're hosting spaces. I'd love for the audience, if you can kind of give like a little bit of an overview of you know, who is Andrew Wang, how did you find your way to the Web3 space and you know, what are you up to today? I, I think you're right that I am multi-hyphenated and sometimes I feel like that's a weakness, but other times in small moments, I can see it being a, being a strength. Uh, so yeah, I came into this space about a year and a half ago primarily as a freelance writer, because that was what I'd worked through uh, during the pandemic. Only way to really make money uh, in, in my mind, it was something that I've always liked doing. So I came into the space trying to uplift creators, artists, founders, hosting Twitter spaces, uh, anywhere and everywhere, uh, learning to sort of break through my social anxiety of being publicly heard, because what was on the other end of that, uh, being embedded in a culture and being recognized for it just felt like worthwhile to, to kind of take that risk. And, you know, since then I've played around with everything from trying to build use cases, uh, for charity to more recently starting a project and launching a fun little social experiment for cheap, um, to going back to hosting Twitter spaces and, and doing it in a different way, all the way to trying to make investments in, in Web3 companies trying to make investments outside of Web3, trying to dive deep and, and be an intellectual, but sometimes just wait around and, and be a be a complete degenerate. So I think that's where the, the multi-hyphenate comes from. It would be like, like journalist, host, artist, creative, degenerate friend. Yeah. So. <laughs> and I think what's what beautiful about it too is like, it changes, like it's so fluid, right? I think our, our mutual friend Toby has said like, I'm a man and I have contradictions. Like he was, he was quoting, like, uh, I contradict myself, like the Walt Whitman quote, but this idea of like who you are every day can change on like what your interests and passions are and what's needed. And so like, sometimes you're going to do a bunch of spaces. Sometimes you're going to, you know, dive in and, and build and be an artist and create. And so it's not this like single uniform thing and we're going to get to devotion, but I definitely want to spend a de decent amount of time of like how you got there. But I'd love to know, you know, what was your entry into Web3? And then you know, why are you sticking around? You know, because right now is not the easiest time. Uh, just broadly, right? There's a bunch of macro conditions and in, in every industry that are being impacted. But I think particularly in Web3, we're, we're certainly in the doldrums. And if you're here, like there has to be a purpose that that isn't centered in in financial gain i think those tourists left you know with the, with the bull market so yeah wh why did you join and, and why are you here today yeah i well first thing i want to say is i, I think I, I got into the space almost out of necessity which is kind of interesting i, I think 
we always talk about people getting into the space out of opportunity. Uh, but I, I really think this space has legs when people can get into it out of necessity. Cause I think there, there's a certain kind of meaning there. I mean, look, uh, the financial incentives and what I was working before, it wasn't like, Oh, here's a way to make more money. It was like, this just isn't working for me. Right. Working as a freelance writer, making basically minimum wage, not even doing all this work, pitching, not having many connections in the writing world, uh, having been the first in my family to, to go to college and feeling a little bit uh, of an outsider that way. I was working in an industry where I wasn't very happy and also wasn't making very much money at all. And on top of that, I uh, had a really bad concussion playing pickup basketball. They, they made me guard a guy who was 6'9". I'm like a foot not shorter six than nine. that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not 6'9". I'm not, I can stand up, right? I'm not, I don't have to. I'm not 6'9". And they're like, oh, put Andrew in this guy because he's got the dog in him. I was like, <laughs> you can't just say he has the dog in him so to, to make him do all this bullshit. But I, uh, you know, I, I, I had a really bad head injury. I was, you know, healing from a concussion is tough. Yeah. Probably one of the most depressing points of my life where, where you wake up every day and like it doesn't get better. And you have this like complete brain fog and, you know, you, you, you can't think or, or do anything. And so, you know, I kind of got into NFTs that way. I would sort of peek through through a blanket and, and that was when NFTs were starting to get a little big last year. So I, I had heard about them and I was like, okay, I don't really know what this is, but look, I, I know what it's like to, to collect things. I know what it's like to enjoy art. Let me get into it. And then it was sort of full steam ahead because it was the only thing for me to do. But I think I am a little bit obsessive where if I can see something new and build a narrative around that, like, hey, this is the future. This is culture, brands fashion experiences um i'll just go all in and sometimes i do that to a fault and what i'm trying to do is to be more thoughtful about that but that's what i mean when i i, I got in from necessity as for why i'm here still part of it is i think i, I can't underemphasize that just being in the space itself and being full-time with your time and attention like that's a risk as well had i not gone into nfts i probably would have reapplied to grad school and I would be on my way to being a professor right now. And instead, I'm doing what feels on some days the exact opposite. On other days, what is productive, maybe a little bit similar. But it's like, this is part of the path that I've chosen to take. And I don't think I've taken it to the end yet. Even if I've made a lot of money in this space, which I don't think I have. Um, <laughs> I, I don't think... <laughs> it's it's, it's tough to tell now. Yeah. I don't think anyone, like, if you're looking at current portfolio value, it's like... The worst when I'm forced to look at what my portfolio value is by Blur just did their their airdrop today, the day that we're recording. I'm like, oh, that unrealized loss looks terrible. Right, right. I'm looking at that as well. And it's (laughs) it's extremely painful. And there was a time when you could look at like the unrealized losses or gains and be like, oh, but I but you know, they're they're pricing all my doodles at the floor. Yes, exactly. The one with the fire. And it's aesthetic because it has the blue background with the with the blue hair. And now nobody gives a shit about that. The floor is the floor. So maybe we'll talk about that as well. But it's like, damn, may, maybe Blur is right. And um, you know, I, I you know, full disclosure, uh, you know, I, I am a I'm a small little little baby investor in, in Blur. So so hope hope that goes well. That's part of what I'm I'm learning being in the space too, kind of expanding myself. But I think I, I think that the, the biggest thing that's kept me in the space, honestly is it makes the world feel smaller. Um, gosh, 
you know, being in Web2, seeing brands do things, people with lots of money do things. I feel so much like a consumer who can either say yes or no to something that's been already built and presented to me. At least here, I feel like I still get to be in the driver's seat or at least in the car itself and be privy to new things that are being built, whether or not they're profitable, whether or not they're going to be successful, to just be surrounded by innovation. Uh, The world doesn't feel so big and unattainable and untouchable anymore, right? Behind everything, there's people, there's, there's organizations, there's innovations, there's, there's mistakes. And, you know, in, in a bear market, especially you get to kind of like, like open the veil a little bit more and and see that process. And and to me, it just, it, it, it keeps my, it keeps my world interesting. And plus, you know, all, all, all my friends are here anyways. And so it's like, it's the social fabric of my life now. So that's probably why I'm still here too. Yeah, a hundred percent. And I echo a lot of those, those sentiments. I would want to pull the thread on this idea of transitioning from consumer to creator or from consumer to active participant in what ways you've felt that like how has your relationship changed with the communities or rather like audiences to communities and how that has changed your perception of what your relationship is with these brands and products that are being built in the space right now mm-hmm. I, I think broadly speaking vaguely speaking it's about believing in in some aspect of web3 seeing that belief be crushed uh, sometimes like relentlessly and, and without remorse and then coming back from those ashes and finding some sort of middle ground. I, I think a good example of that is is the value prop of 10K PFP projects, for example. You know, last year, what, what we would always say is, you know, the great thing about PFPs is that when you buy this collectible and you become an advocate for it and you become a strong part of that community, that's what creates value. And then that value can come back to you. Now, obviously that, that that's all good. But at the same time, if you really pay attention to the space, there are projects that can be coordinated pumps where, where the value comes in first and then people can rally around that and pretend that there's community. There are projects where the community seems super strong up into the point where you get allow list opportunities or you have the opportunity to exit with some profit and then it becomes a little bit fake. Or there are certain projects where in a bull market, that value prop is more direct, right? I am advocating for this project. I'm making it my identity. I might even be going so far as to, to, to build interesting derivatives or, or building a podcast around it or, or building more content around it or participating in IRL things, um, educating others about it. And, and that would create value. But then in a bear market where we've reached these huge highs and then things come crashing down, it's almost like, what does it mean if you've been a huge part of the community and you wrote it on the way up, which was in part you're doing, but then you also wrote it on the way down, which wasn't all in part like you fighting the project or no longer being a part of it. It's this weird feeling of like, well, where does that leave me? What's the, what's the shelf life or, or lifespan of, of future communities? How do you extend it? Or at the very least, how do you make it more sustainable? And I think that's, that, that's something that uh, I'm trying to wrap my head around. It's like, you know, these, these ways that we participate, uh, oftentimes the rules, the incentives uh, change. And, and how do we stay on top of that and, and try to, to build a system where participating um, helps you helps you win? 
Yeah, it's it's an interesting point in time where I think that thesis of participation in a NFT community in particular will indirectly have value accrual back to holders. It, by and large, I think we've seen that thesis fail in a in a lot of places, and and obviously, like everyone is is down right now. But you're seeing even the tenor of conversation of, for example, NFT brands taking VC money has completely shifted. When it was the bull market, and you were seeing you know VC money come in, it was viewed as a signal, right? It was wow all this money is coming into the space, all this interest is coming into the space, that is going to impact me as a holder. And when the floor value is going up, you view them as correlated. What's happening now, even you look at the doodles raise announcement, the proof raise announcement, this is actually a question that I that I got to ask Kevin Rose a couple of weeks ago was, how have you viewed the tenor changing in in that sense? And, and it has, it's like, oh, well, that's not going to impact me. I hear a lot of conversation of, oh, this is going to em- impact the brand and the equity of the brand. But I think there was like a, a real stark lesson for a lot of people that as a holder, you do not own equity in a company. And so what is good for the company is not necessarily good for you. And a community that is held together by financial ties is not a community at all. It's an investment club. And so a lot of those, what you thought were really strong bonds are not there anymore. And, and what I've, I've, you know, we have like our group chats. I think it's really fascinating to see the like diaspora, if you will, the dias- diaspora of people out of these discords. Like, why am I spending my time here? What I really, what I really found to be valuable was the relationships. Like, that's that's the community, not not the relationship to the the NFT project. And so I, I do wonder, you know, for these these long term brands, how they think about real community, real long lasting loyalty and impact when the key thesis has effectively been like proven to be incorrect. It's a hard question. I, I wish I could figure that out. If I could figure it out, maybe that's assigned to, to, to do a project of that nature. And I, I haven't gotten there with, with anything I, I've ever launched. But um, one of one of the terms, you know, we kind of use in our friend circles is like community evangelism. How do you reward evangelists, people who, who really care? And, you know, you see projects starting to do that more. I mean, 10K TF is one of those where you have to participate to unlock future things. You can't just be a holder. You have to be active. Um, I, I know, I think Azuki has a collector's profile now. Uh, Moonbirds will give you stamps for going to events. Um, different projects are, are doing different things. Uh, and I still feel like I haven't seen anything that fully solves that question. Um, maybe it's just a fundamental reality of the space where, like you said, the, these investment clubs might not be the best format for 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 relationships as a whole. I mean, even thinking about some of the group chats that we're in together, um, I think some of them have, have held up pretty well. The Basel one has held up pretty well because <laughs> we, literally, we just got together to, to, to party and hang out and talk and, and go swimming. And like that was how it was conceived, which is maybe what, what made it more durable mm-hmm. to market conditions. But at the same time, you know, in a, in a bear market, people are, are chatting less. I remember we had that thing going for like four or five months where yeah. people would talk every day after after Basel. But that also kind of coincides with the bear market hitting. 
man, I'm sure that if we could all get together at a bar, uh, we would all hang out like friends. But it, but it still is a tough time. We're all, we're, we're all kind of trying to figure out our identity. Um, it, it is a bit of a crisis uh, yeah. at the community level, at the individual level. And I, and I think that's the danger of people who identified as their PFPs to begin with. I, we have a mutual friend, LDF, who very poignantly during the bull market was saying that your PFP is not your identity. And she was absolutely right. Like a lot of people put it on a pedestal and identified as their PFP. And I do think that it can be a characteristic and it can be an attribute of who you are. And like belonging to a community is, is part of who you are. But when it makes up your entire identity, like you're right, it can it can become a crisis. I do think, and and we'll shift into devotion in th- in this part because what I think is really great about the bear market is I've seen more and more people who were in like the winter of 2021 or summer of 2021 engaging in these NFT communities and you know riding them to all time highs. Now that they can't rely on that generational wealth. They're going out and they're building their own things. They're striking out on their own. They're they're getting in after projects. Like they're they're wanting something for their own. I think in part because they've recognized they can't rely on these externalities. They have no control over. And so, and with that, I'd I'd love to talk about your journey to devotion. You just did your first project drop uh, this week, which congratulations! It was really exciting to see it go live on Twitter and it was like a stealth drop through the contract. And I don't want to give too much of it away, but I would love for you to kind of walk through, you know, what the thought process was around it, how it differs from a lot of brand projects, because I very much view this as performative art. Uh, and yeah, we can take it from there. Yeah. I I think what was the biggest takeaway from doing this? Uh, the project is called splat by devotion and it's commentary inspired by what happened on Friday at the National Gallery in London when protesters um, went into the museum and spilled tomato soup all over Van Gogh's sunflowers as a uh, protest uh, about uh, climate change, about uh, oil and, and fossil fuels. And this moment when it happened, it, it really struck me because I immediately saw the connections to Web3, right? What does performance art look like in Web3? everybody joking about how this could never happen to NFTs. Well, maybe it could, maybe there's a world in which it could. And, you know, crypto people, like we don't like being told that something's not possible. Um, You know, even if it is impossible, that's kind of like the irony of it. Like you can't steal an NFT. Well, you can, but that's, that's a different kind of project we're talking about. And honestly, if I had the tech to steal any NFT just by pointing at it, uh, I would not be on this podcast. I would be, doing other things and, and moving to a faraway country uh, with every single NFT in existence. Um, <laughs> but just, just kidding. I, um, it, it was about seeing something happen in the world. And when you think about it, in Web2, you don't have many tools to respond to things that happen in the world that shift culture without a lot of money, without a lot of people, without a lot of, say, clearance. Um, you can make a tweet, and that tweet might go viral, as, as I have, in the past commenting on things only for other brands to take it and, and run and post it on their Instagrams. Uh, you can make TikToks about it, but there's not necessarily upside depending on the kind of commentary you make. But you think about things like, uh, I would say a big cultural moment for me was when there was that guy on TikTok, you know, skating, 
drinking ocean spray to, to dreams by, by Fleetwood Mac. That was a case where Web2 and brands really turned that viral moment into something more viral. Uh, there was a whole team at Ocean Spray, you know, making it happen. And, and that's sort of how the world works sometimes. And I was like, what's the equivalent of a Web3 project where we take a viral moment and comment on top of that or, or do our own spin on it or give our own messaging on that? And the answer was, you know, half vandalism, half art heist on the blockchain. And it's called Splat because we minted you these uh, cans of tomato soup and you could take a can of tomato soup and splat it on any NFT on, on ETH. You didn't have to own it, which was part of the fun. You could only splat one time and an NFT that had already been splatted couldn't be splatted again. So we instantly wanted to build in this game theory to honestly like do something new and, and make people have some fun with it. Um, we priced it, in our opinion, uh, relatively inexpensively at 0.05 ETH and then only a thousand because we wanted this to be more of like an experiment and, and set that expectation. And then people were able to, to mint these soup cans and then everybody thought, hey, what's my target going to be? Is it going to be someone I love, someone I hate, an infamous rugger, an influencer, a grail work, uh, whether a Fidenza or a rare crypto punk or artists that have gotten really big doing awesome stuff like, like Grant Yoon. And when we opened the contract, for the splatting, people actually had to go in contract to type in their targets with the contract address and the token IDs of their can and the NFT. And part of what's funny about that is like everyone was saying, wow, this is cool. This feels like a real art heist. Like I have to go in the contract and do it. And from our end, we were like, yeah, thinking the whole time uh, we wanted to do this quickly and save money by not building a front end, which is why we use the contract. <laughs> So you, you find a way to, to make things work. But I think the moral of this story is it's nice to be nimble in NFTs and it's nice to experiment. And I, I hope we have more of that so long as we set expectations up front that this isn't like a proof pass or, or something where all the value will, will flow to it. It's it's a fine line and something that I'm, I'm happy to get your thoughts on as well. Yeah, I, I would love to know how you thought about setting those expectations up front. You know, we've, we've talked about this project for a bit and I knew that your, your mind was going to be around performative art. And really, I remember when Wag Die came out over the, the summer, which for those that don't know, is We Are All Gonna Die. It was very much in this like medieval pixely format and they were having like quests that were like every day they would like jump into the Twitter spaces and there would be like this ominous voice playing like terrible medieval music and they would have sacrifices where people were throwing NFTs to the burn contract. And Psyduck, one of your co-founders, wrote this great piece around how this was a this was a performance. Like this was not meant to last forever. And even if they hadn't said it explicitly up front, it was very clear that this was going to be a moment in time. And I think that's so important where our entire engagement as a community is so fleeting. Like we, our attention spans are like goldfish. So the idea that we could pay attention for something for a day, for a couple days and, and be able to move on from it and know that like our NFT was a price of admission and then became a collectible and something to look at. It wasn't a financial instrument that we expected to go you know, to the moon. 
I think is a beautiful additional layer and an element for NFTs. But I am curious how you thought you managed expectations up front and what the response has been. You know, as you you put out a thread today that kind of illustrated what the thinking was behind it and, and where it goes from here. Yeah. You know, I think how we tried to do that was in the economics of it, first and foremost. I think everybody, when looking at a project, you should always do the math of how much ETH or, or how many dollars equivalent uh, a company or, or an artist is seeking. I mean, just do the math. Number of tokens times the mint price. For us, it was 0.05 times 1,000. And then factoring how there was zero holdback for the team. I think mm-hmm. like immediately from there, it's there, there's a kind of performance aspect of it, uh, getting something out for relatively cheap you know, the price of a video game, essentially. And then to have people come in and, and have this experience. I, uh, you know, spoke a bunch of times on Spaces. I said, hey guys, this is an experiment. I'm not trying to make this into proof pass. Uh, the fun should be in the innovation and what you can do with it. Uh, splat your friend for the cost of a video game. Um, please don't speculate on it too much. And it, it's hard to push away speculators because this is a space built on speculation. But I think it's also important for founders who want to do these little things uh, to remember that, uh, you know, founders and creators and artists are not insurance for gamblers. It's also a really key thing. I, I, I hope I was able to key in on like, you know, I want to do something fun. I, I want to make somebody happy. And if people want to sweep these things and then list a bunch for hire and make profit, can't stop it because it's, it's decentralized. But I think so much of running a project is also having a culture. And to me, a thousand people is easier to create a culture around in a short amount of time than say 10,000, because 10,000 can sort of get away from you. And we've seen 10,000 get away from founders of all projects. There's not a single project, in my opinion, that's been able to really properly rein in 10,000 people. It's tough to think about. 10,000 is half the max capacity of Madison Square Garden. So is that a lot or a little? Because if I if I go to a Knicks game at, at MSG and it's at max capacity, 20K, let's say from my field of view, I can see about half of everybody in the stadium. That is a lot of people, um, at, at least for me sitting in the stadium. But then obviously if you compare MSG with all the cars and all the people crossing streets in New York, all the people in their little apartments, it is very much a minuscule number. But I think... Part of it was just trying to rein in the culture. I spent 10 hours on spaces, wrote multiple threads, uh, shared all, all my thoughts about the project. And the hope is that those 1,000, you know, max 1,000 holders can sort of see that and, and be able to, to make that decision. Uh, responsibility is definitely a, a gray area, but I, I always appreciate intention. And I think we should evaluate projects on a one-to-one, like case-by-case basis. You know, maybe the next project I do is an experiment, but if there's bigger supply or if I'm asking for more, then definitely hold me responsible for for what that suggests. But I I think we need to be like, you know, pretty discerning uh, about that. Yeah. And we have to leave room for experimentation and for 
you know, not everyone wants to build the next great. I, I swear, if I hear one more brand say that they're building Disney, I'm gonna lose it. I think I saw that on on Twitter today. That was like, I'm so excited for the year 2030 when we have a hundred Disneys in Web three. Like, all right, like let's let's focus on on real sustainable growth here. But but the point being, and, and Carly and I actually talked about this a little bit last week. We have to allow for experimentation. We have to allow for room for failure. We have to if we're going to push the space forward. No one wants an ice cream store where all the flavors are vanilla. Like we we fail as a community if we get a bunch of Yuga derivatives. Like that playbook just doesn't work and and quite frankly is a little bit extractive in terms of just continually pumping out supply and and really having consumers. And that's not to say they don't support holders. Just broadly speaking, I think we need to try a bunch of different things. I think we need to allow for like in the same way that you would pay to go like buy a video game, you said, or go to a sporting event, like go to the Knicks. That was the cost of admission. And cool, now it's like a memento. And the amazing part about it is unlike going to that Knicks game or unlike you know, a little bit like a video game, you could do something with it later. You're, you're not beholden to it. And I want to be very clear that Andrew is not committing to doing anything with that NFT later, but it now is a digital breadcrumb. It is something that years from now, could hold value in a variety of different ways just by the nature of it being composable with everything else on chain. So I wonder how you think about that as you know you continue to to think through the development of of all these different experiments that you want to do. You know, where where is your head at with like leaving this as a self-contained piece versus building out like an interconnected web of projects? I I, I hope that more people find new ways to think about all the NFTs that they own and what they enable. I think the most direct example of what an NFT enables is the formal utility. If there's an airdrop, et cetera, et cetera, like sure. But I think, but I think that's a little bit reductive of what NFTs enable um, versus like saying like what NFTs give me. Because when it's like what an NFT gives me, uh, we might say, what's the token? What's the thing that I get? What's the allow list? But I think a simple example is what emotions does this enable? What does this let me do? How can this inspire me? And another thing I really like to think about is network effects. NFTs are an amazing place for network effects to take hold. I mean, look at Blur launching today. Yeah. Uh, again, don't want to pump it too much because I'm, I'm a small investor in it, but they had this airdrop where you could claim these, these boxes and, you know, open it like a gambler. Is it uncommon, rare, legendary? Uh, but you had to list an NFT on Blur. And so that was a really good way to bootstrap network effects because all of a sudden everybody's listing because they want to claim uh, what is, uh, I believe, a token in the future. So all of a sudden everybody's saying like, hey, have you heard of Blur? Like, go go and list your NFT. You list a random NFT so you can claim these things. And then all of a sudden all this attention is coming in. That's an example of network effects, like really formally incentivized. Uh, I think for something like Splat, think about it as like a real life food fight. If we were sitting in a cafeteria together in middle school and I just threw a tomato at your head, uh, you would probably fight me. And then we would like square up and then people would start recording and shouting world star. But that's a kind of network <laughs> effect, right? We're like getting everybody in the cafeteria involved. We're providing some great, great YouTube content. Um, only one of us is gonna emerge <laughs> out of the tomato sauce. Uh, but I think like a project like this, it's like, what does it mean if you splat your friend's favorite PFP? Does that enable something new because of the response? 
what if you splat someone you hate or, or an infamous Ruggers PFP? Uh, one, one of my favorite things, there are two really great moments I saw yesterday where I splatted Beeple's every days the first 5,000 days because it's the most expensive NFT ever sold. No way I could ever afford something like that. But I was able to splat it, tweet at Beeple saying like, God is ass. And then he retweeted it and dude barely tweets. So I was like, holy crap. Like he quote retweeted me and saying like, you know, guests like JPEGs aren't safe either. And like, that was funny. And I, hopefully it made some people laugh and they're like, haha, like, you know, called attention to, to what was happening about Van Gogh being not safe. And now the JPEGs aren't safe either. And I took that tweet and then I, I splatted the tweet to get his ass again. And then like, hopefully made some people laugh and, you know, played to network effects. Somebody else who's the biggest Dimitri Cherniak fan, uh, you know, creator of ringers, he splatted the goose ringer. It's a ringer that looks like a goose. And Dimitri retweeted it and said, bravo. So maybe that leads to a friendship between them. And maybe they work on something in the future or, or they become collectors of each other. I, I love the idea that there are a lot of passionate people out here, but we don't know what we're capable of doing until we meet the right people or, or we're put in the right group. Uh, it's like puzzle pieces. And I, I think Splat is an example of me trying to, you know, with devotion and, and with our lead artist, uh, Danny Cole, who, who helped take the idea of the cans and the splat uh, to the final by, by, by doing the art. Like, how do we work together to really put people in the right place? Whether we're putting them into those spots or we're giving people something that they can use to organize themselves. I think, I don't want to put out too much alpha now, uh, but- Oh, you can give, give them a little <laughs> alpha. A little <laughs> I, alpha. Yeah, I, I talked talk with a friend and, and I think he wants to incorporate splat into their DAO. Wow. Where you can get airdrop tokens of the DAO if you own a splat just for them to run a little fun activation. And so so that to me is fun. But I think at the end of the day, with where we priced it, the fact that we held little back, it's like, let's do this experiment. Let's all learn a bunch from it. Let's put an idea out there, get the creativity flowing. The next thing, hopefully it's it's even better. And I, I hope we can make a small change in the culture to encourage more of that. Because it's very different from from trying to launch the next Disney. So yeah, absolutely. I do want to touch a little bit on. You mentioned the protest kind of being this like moment in time, yeah. and that you wanted to make sure to capitalize on this, and it, time was of the essence while while it was in people's mind. And and there was a bit of I saw some commentary uh, from some people in the space. I think Betty had a few tweets around. Know, is was the protest central to the vision of the NFT itself? What was the determining factor behind that? And, and largely, like, were we supporter? Was devotion, you know, supportive of of the protest? And just a recap for people that don't know, um, you know, a few individuals went into a museum and splatted, if you will, uh, through through uh, to, it was tomato sauce on a Van Gogh sunflower as a way of protesting uh it, the focus needs to be not on on necessarily like uh the preservation of the arts but more on climate change and that we need to focus on climate change do i have do i have that correct yeah i i'd say i'd say that's that's a strong way to explain it i um you know this was something that happened and then made worldwide headlines and so commentary is coming in from, from every angle, from people who applauded them for, for civil disobedience, and that was the term they liked to use. Others called them vandals and criminals. 
some said, what did Van Gogh have to do with, with oil? I mean, it's an oil painting, I, I guess. But, I, you know, that, that was one of the, the potential critiques of it as well. For us, um, I think that when you make art, it doesn't always have to have an activism component. I think it's, it's about the way you interpret something. And for us, we wanted the activist component to be in the, in the economics of it uh, instead of in, in the way that it could be done. Because we're trying to do so many different things at once, trying to build uh, a smart contract that has some innovations to let you splat NFTs you don't own, um, to, to telling a story about committing an art heist or, or, or vandalism, or as we like to call it, permissionless collaboration on the blockchain. Um, that is like the main effect that we wanted to reach with splat. But with that said, you know, I personally, um, I still don't know if I fully agree with splatting a, a Van Gogh and maybe that's me being a, 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 an art snob. And it's like, Andrew, you don't need to die on this hill. I think I'm more just like, you know, what necessarily is, is the meaning of that? Uh, but at the very least, I can look at this and say, I respect, I respect people who, who try to raise awareness about climate change. Uh, it's also important to me. You know, I've personally donated to climate change in the past and we've, we've set aside, I've set aside money from the mint to donate to climate action uh, organizations that accept crypto. So for us, that's a way of also doing activism uh, where the activism doesn't necessarily have to be like on the on-chain project itself, but it could be an aspect of it. And I mean, like this is me coming, coming from a perspective where the only time I've ever sold an NFT before this was to raise a million dollars for charity. And every single penny went to those charities and we got to see the effects of crypto and, and NFT art to, to raise money in a rapid uh, way that, that, you know, transcended, you know, what, what could be allowed in, in, in TradFi. And like, I lost money on that because <laughs> I was you know deploying contracts sometimes and thanking certain people who have helped. Like that's, that's money. And for me, it's like, I care a lot about crypto for good, but it doesn't mean that every project has to center that. And I, I wish I had seen Betty's tweet because I, I, I saw a bit that she didn't like uh, something about Splat, uh, but she had deleted a, a previous tweet. So it was a bit hard to engage, but I'm, I'm always... I'm always I'm always open to that, um, but that's that's sort of where I'm coming from. Yeah, under, understood. And you know, Betty is someone I have a tremendous amount of respect for, and I think Absolutely. that it is she always puts her points very eloquently. I do think that there is a discussion around the art itself, like the protest as a vehicle for discussion, can be separated from the ethics of vandalism i that that's kind of like where where i stand with it not to go like too deep into it but i don't necessarily agree with the um with the idea that we should remove support from the arts to then go focus on climate change i think there are like if you want to come after oil companies like go after oil companies but there historically throughout time i think what has been really dangerous is that when you have like regime takeovers, the first thing that they do is go after culture, right? Like they burn books, they burn art, like they take your soul 
And so that is always something that like I, I have always been very, very cautious of. Now, with that being said, as the fact that we're talking about it clearly shows that it like it had an impact in this in that. And so like you have to tip your cap to them. And also like I I removed that separate from the fact of like ca- capitalizing on the moment as an NFT and having it be again like prolonging the discussion and showing how things could go from like the physical to the digital i saw a tweet from someone that said now imagine when it starts in the digital world and moves to the physical we're not that far away from it but using that as a vehicle to actually release new tech and new ways of of collaboration is is something that you know i'm very very bullish on so i I do want to commend you for that yeah, it's almost like all the again network effects and and all the unexpected ways that things yeah. can go back to things. Um, it, it's interesting because it's like this was a moment that for them was about activism, and not everybody read it that way. And then for us, it was, you know, the explicit part is that we are making a donation to climate action. Mm-hmm. But 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 the main thing is building out this tech, making somebody happy, making NFTs fun showing people that like, here's what splatting on, on the blockchain would look like as an ironic point, that it's also, it's both possible and not possible because it's an NFT. And, and it's like, you know, everything from, man, this is an NFT that can't be formally splatted and, and like unusable or like broken or stolen, but also the fact that NFTs can, can never gain a, a, a patina, can, can never break down, can, can never crumple up, can never lose its color. Uh, and maybe people also work around that and think of what it's like to build an NFT that can get a patina over time, uh, it, like with AI or, or something. And it's like thinking about all these things, but then maybe, maybe whatever we did makes other people think back to what the protesters did. And if that's the way they want to take it, then do it in a permissionless way, because it's not for me to say how, how you should, how you should process it. I, I think at the core of it, just wanted to, to make people think because that moment made me think. And I don't know, maybe that's art, maybe not. But at the very least, we tried not to make it a cash grab. So. <laughs> I don't think anyone can uh, accuse you of this being a cash grab. There was very much the chatter as people were minting from the contract was, to your point, doing the math and saying like, wow, they definitely did this the right way. Very minimal, like very low price point, given where we are in the market right now, incredibly limited supply. You think about the amount of work that would just go into making something like this happen with with the idea of splatting and the time and, and effort. I would love for you to to talk a bit about that. Like what did what did this process look like from beginning to end and and maybe use that as a vehicle to talk about devotion overall and and your co-founders and and how you guys came together? Absolutely. So Obviously, we couldn't have been working on this over the last two to three months since we announced Devotion because that would be some crazy Illuminati stuff if like, we had been building this before the protesters happened. Now, that would actually be very interesting. And if that were the case, then these NFTs maybe maybe speculate on it. If that maybe were the, the NFTs case. came first. If we knew about like, world events <laughs> happening. But um, obviously, you know, we, we had to build this in about 72 hours. Um, and Devotion, we've been working on, on other things in the meantime. Uh, we've put out ideas, we've made progress on things, scrapped some things, tweaked some things, you know, seen like what the costs are for building certain things. And, you know, the cost of building out a big, big project that we stay attached to for as long as we can be in the space with our full commitment, the way we see projects like Proof, uh, Doodles, etc. Um, that's very different than this project. This is one of those cases where 
we had spent all this time in a creative zone that when the moment happened, I was like, whoa, like guys, like quick, quick huddle, like this could be a thing and, and this could be exciting and this could be interesting and new. And then Backseats Our Dev gives an idea of like, oh, this is what ha- could happen on the smart contract level. And Psyduck is coming in and talking about how we could design it and, and you know, how we price it and, and how do we make this like a fun little weekend thing to, to for the amount of time we put in, which, you know, I didn't sleep for three days, but also three days is three days. How do we make something that its effect is greater than just the pure hours we, we put in? Um, and then from there, we, we imagine the soup cans, we imagine the splatting, we imagined how it would work on the contract level. And then I, I drew these tomato soup cans and they're pretty garbage. So I called up Danny Cole and I said, hey, Danny, like, you know, we're friends. We've, we've done stuff before in the past. Um, can you help me take these to final and, and make it, you know, with, with you, uh, you know, kind of leading the vision on what they look like. And then they, they turned out great. So boom, like got the art and then worked on the contract some issues with OpenSea, some issues with testnet, you, you get a few delays, you think something can be built fast and you think, hey, we could launch this tonight. And then it's, one little thing goes wrong and it's like, oh my gosh, well, we just lost another 24 hours. Mm-hmm. But that was kind of the, the contradiction because if you're building a big project, you wanna take that time, do tons and tons of testing, make sure everything is flawless, but we're against the clock here. So it was almost like trying to be perfect while also trying to be very fast. And then it was like, all right, let me write out a little monologue for Twitter spaces about how to excite people. Let me make some memes from this. Um, There's like a chunky tomato soup can. Let me think about like who we're going to target for an interesting effect. Um, And like, I don't know, like I just saw something on my phone, glanced over it, that uh, Pac followed me back and some people oh, said this Pac, is like, we can have like a full, full, we can have a full podcast. We can have me back for that reason. Who knows? Um, I'll, I'll put that away for later, but <laughs> I think, I think a lot of it is trying to think really quickly. Um, so here, here's one thing that I'll say, maybe this is advice for founders and, and teams. When you're building a project, uh, a lot of people say, Hey, what if we did this? Or what if we did this new thing? Or wouldn't this be exciting? We don't think enough about the effect that it can have on somebody or like what happens afterwards. I uh, was thinking a lot about Wides, this project where they, they minted the CryptoPunks and every time you transferred a CryptoPunk, it would get a little bit wider, right? Mm-hmm. And it was cool for a time, but then it sort of died down. And at one point, they somebody made a post that was like, hey, it's kind of cool that CryptoPunks get wider each time until... They're indiscernible as CryptoPunks to the point where they look like works by Mark Rothko, right? He has like basically like two colors kind of. It's like, how does this thing sell for millions and millions of dollars? But it is Rothko-esque. And for me, I'm like, make that a part of the story from the beginning. You know, you don't have to tell people we're making Rothkos, but allude to that more. Make people feel it more. Because otherwise you have a project where something just gets wider. But what's the effect of something getting wider? It's that it starts to resemble art of the old world or art of a greater world or art that we've seen before that's recognizable to, to build a bridge from what's new and, and what's come before. And that to me is like an effect. And, and so for Splat, we wanted the effect to be like, it's not just the fact that you're putting tomato soup on something, the same way in activism for them. I think if 
all they did was show up in the gallery, <laughs> throw a tomato soup on it, and be like, fuck Van Gogh. Gosh, how terrible would that be? Like, it would be very weird. You'd have to find, like, a very nihilistic person to be like, they killed it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, what's what's the effect? And for us, we wanted the effect to be like, let's get a rise out of somebody. Let's piss somebody off. Let's make somebody happy. If I splat your grail PFP, am I making a meme of it? Or am I elevating it to the level of something that deserved to be splat? And I think from our initial data, um, you know, a couple hundred splattings, we saw famous PFPs like Punk 6529 to artists who are really making it big right now, doing awesome stuff like Grant Yoon, to the most well-known artists in the space, Beeple, Tyler Hobbs, Snowfro, Drifter Shoots. And, and to me, that was really interesting. It's almost like making grails of grails. That was the finding. And it follows that that's, that's the effect. Now, were multiple people able to splat the same NFT? No. I mean, unless we messed up in the contract somewhere, I, I think we're okay. Yeah. Uh, once something was splatted, nobody else could splat it. So somebody splatted my cool cat. And I was like, okay, now you own my, my splatted cool cat. It's a race. That, that's fascinating. Yeah, I, I'm curious if you, if you viewed it from – or if you thought – when when that became the decision point, right? Because the other, the inverse of that could have been you can splat whoever as many times as you want. And it would have been really interesting as well to see like what is the distribution? Like where where does people's attention go? Who do they think of to splat and and view the patterns that way? It, that's so yeah, either either way, but I, I like this idea of the race, right? Because I remember when it was going on in the contract hearing people be like, all right, I gotta go. Like I gotta, I gotta be the first one to, to splat it. And in this you know, perverse way, you are forever actually linked to the, the real piece itself. I mean, that's what I love about projects like, you know, like, like splat. It's almost like the equivalent in the PFP world is finding an NFT with a trait that's really cool and hearing mm-hmm. a story about it. Like how in cool cats, uh, the uh, tiger trait goes back to Klon being inspired by Bill Watterson, the artist of Calvin and Hobbes. So it's the Hobbes trait. It's it's not the tiger trait, so to speak. And people who who bought that felt really connected to it. In, in that same vein, I'm like, 90% of the project should be explained pretty quickly. Like, get this tomato soup, splat somebody else's, you don't have to own it, mess with them, have some fun. It's based on this Van Gogh protest. But then there's that 10% where you really need to put in that work to discover why something really touches you. And for us, it can't, it's very unlikely to be the financial upside. It's more likely to be, Hey, I I made a friend from this. Hey, I made an enemy from this. Hey, I got to spot a grail because I can never purchase this like, you know, straight off the chain, but I can do some commentary on it and feel close and tied to it. And maybe that emotional effect is, is worth the 0.05 mint price. And, you know, this is stuff that, I kind of had to think through with my team on the fly and it was probably understated. Uh, but I think that's part of the fun as well. I mean, artists or poets, imagine if every time a, a poet wrote an amazing p- poem, she had to go do a reading and people just raised their hand and said, you know, what did you mean by, by this line when you talk about the sunflowers? So Maybe I, that takes away from poetry. Yeah. Obviously coming from, from music that as well, that, that really, touches me because you hear a lot of artists talk about their lyrics and a lot are guarded in actually sharing 
what the lyrics mean to them because it's not about them anymore. It's about once that express, like the expression of their art is out into the world, it's no longer their story. It's the story of everyone else and how they interpret it. And so there is this, if I were to like highlight one big idea for this, this discussion, it's been, you know, you can only do so much in the performative side of creating this narrative arc, right? Like you, you very much had a clear vision of what you thought the narrative would be and creating the context around the environment. But once it's out into the world, that's where the second, third, fourth, fifth order effects start to take place. The connections that you couldn't have thought of, the ways in which people would interact and and connect and, and think through, you know, what was their reasoning for doing that? Like, what information did they bring in that impacted what they brought out? And and knowing that everyone has the own their own reality in which they they operate within, I think is pretty beautiful. Yeah, I mean it's 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 very well said. Uh, this is a space that can surprise you. Um, you know, I I think at the end of the day, it also goes back to thinking about how to incentivize and organize people in the right way. I think if you incentivize and organize people in a good way, in a way that feels fair, feels kind, uh, helps them achieve what they want. They will bring that value back to you. I think I I saw a big part of that where, you know, I started checking my notifications and some people said, you know, just another influencer selling some trash art or trash project built in three days uh, to, to make some more money off of us regular people. And I saw that and it, it made my heart sink because it was like, man, like I've been in the space showing up every day for a year and a half. I've raised seven figures for charity. I've hosted so many spaces for free, all this free work. But the moment I think of an idea, execute it with a team and sell it for overall, like not a very high amount, I get all of this coming back at me. And I, I kind of like became insecure and it's okay to call it an insecurity. I, I think a lot of founders struggle with that. Uh, but you know, some people started saying like, hey, no, like actually like Andrew's been showing up. And if you do the price calculation, it's not that much. And hey, here's what you can do with it. It's it's not just, uh, you know, it's a cheap art. It's like, hey, here's how I think about it. It's about providence. And gosh, like how lucky am I to have people speak for me, even if it's not exactly how I would speak for myself. That's a really cool thing also. But it does mean you have to try to put out quality to get quality back. And you know, it's, it's, it's nice. It's nice to know that in this big, big world with this big following that I never asked for, uh, that I can meet a, you know, a handful or, or a few hundred or even a few thousand people who try to know me. I think there's something really human about that. You come to the space, sure, there's money. Uh, some people will put that first, but being understood as a human being, your, your motivations, where your heart is, that's so rare. And if you can find that and, and hold on to it, the very least it's going to empower you to, to do more cool things and, and stay in the space. I think that's a beautiful place to, to wrap up. And, and Andrew, you know, we've had many conversations about what it means to be a public figure in this space and the, quite frankly, the vitriol that, that you're put up against and still keep like such a positive outlook and continue to build and know that you have people in your corner who recognize that and that ultimately, you know, what you can control is your outlook and and what you know to be true in your heart. And so, you know, I'm incredibly grateful to call you a friend. I'm so appreciative that you are joining me for the first episode of One Big Idea. Uh, and and yeah, we're, we're going to end it there. And 
Uh, Wait, this is the first episode? This is the first episode. That's awesome. So forever, oh, forever, you will be the first guest of One Big Idea. You front, you front ran like, a few I people. Awesome. I was going to be like, awesome, I'm sorry. I haven't seen your other episodes, so I don't know how this goes. But <laughs> now I'm not sorry. We're <laughs> figuring it out on the fly. No, this is great. But we'll, I'm going to stop recording. And, and yeah, thanks, thanks, everyone, for joining us. And we'll see you next time. Thank you for having me.